Um, for those of you who don't know me, yeah, I'm Ludo. I'm one of the one of the team here at Liberty, and uh, it's my privilege to speak to you this morning. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed by now that um, from all the chocolate Easter eggs on sale at Albertine, and also uh, the beautiful spring weather we've got going at the moment, that um, Easter is fast approaching. So in about four weeks' time, uh, Christians across the world uh, will be celebrating and commemorating the death of Jesus on Good Friday uh, and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And that's what Easter is, of course, truly about. Um, It's not about chocolate eggs or even nice time with family, as good as that is. Uh, It's about the death and resurrection of Jesus. So over the coming four weeks, uh, as we lead up to that, we're going to be thinking through some key elements of the resurrection of Jesus and what the Bible has to say uh, about that. Now, if you've uh, been with us for a little while at Liberty, you'll know that the way that we normally um, approach preaching from the Bible on Sundays is that we work through books of the Bible. Um, And we do that with good reason, because we think it's beneficial to engage with all of God's word, even the bits that are difficult or uncomfortable or tricky to understand. Uh, But sometimes for a season, it's helpful to focus in on a particular topic uh, and see the, the full breadth of what God's Word has to say about that. And that's what we're going to be doing um, in this sort of mini-series on the resurrection over the coming four weeks. Uh, but before we really look at uh, what the resurrection means for us, uh, we, we first need to consider whether it really happened. Uh, so I think answering that question is really important. Is there evidence to support the resurrection? Uh, Because if it didn't happen, uh, then any discussion of the meaning and effect of it is kind of pointless. Um, Or at least it would be misguided or misdirected because we're misinterpreting something um, figurative and symbolic as something that is uh, literal and physical. So my my view is that Christ was uh, physically, bodily raised from the dead after his crucifixion. Uh, and that this is an absolutely fundamental truth in understanding the good news about Jesus. Uh, and if I'm right about that, if that's true, then the resurrection really changes everything. So it's uh, massively important and cannot be ignored. So that's what I want to spend our time on today. I want to um, guide us through the evidence surrounding the resurrection. And so it's, it's something a little bit different in some ways to what we'd normally do on a Sunday, but I think uh, it's really important as we start thinking through the resurrection and what it means for us over the coming weeks, and I think it'll be really helpful. So let me pray, and we'll get into it. Thank you, Father God, uh, that you give us your word. Thank you, Lord, uh, that we can come to it and we can know you. Thank you, Father, that um, you help us to follow you, you help us to Uh, to know you, you help us to read and understand your word. We pray that your spirit will be with us today as we think through the resurrection. uh, Help us to think clearly, uh, give us um, insight, Lord, and help us to humbly uh, submit to your word. Amen. All right, Uh, when it comes to the resurrection, uh, there is, of course, a spectrum of views. Um, And those views range on the one hand from there is no God, and uh, resurrections are impossible. So this doesn't really matter, and it's not worth considering. All the way through to the view of most Christians uh, throughout the ages, 
which is that Jesus was physically raised from the dead uh, and that this is central to true Christian faith. Uh, but of course, it's not binary either. There's, uh, there are sort of views in between these two extremes. Perhaps some of you in the room today uh, see your view of the resurrection as sitting somewhere in between these two uh, perspectives. Some of you uh, would call yourselves atheists, and you might argue that it's irrational to believe in something like the resurrection because you'd say it's unscientific. Um, you'd say it breaks the known physical laws of the universe. And I want to more fully address uh, that specific objection uh, in a moment, uh, but for now, at the outset, I want to say that uh, that view relies entirely on the non-existence of God or anything spiritual. Uh, and that you would do well, I think, to carefully consider the evidence for the resurrection. Because if it did happen, um, then you, you would need to reconsider your entire worldview. And even within Christianity, uh, there are those who sit somewhere in between these two perspectives. There are those who disagree uh, with the predominant view of a physical resurrection. Uh, so one example is a guy called John Shelby Spong. He's a, uh, a retired bishop of the Episcopal Church in the States. Uh, and his view of the Easter story is that it's something um, mythological and subjective. He sees it as something non-historical and non-physical, uh, but still true in some kind of spiritual sense uh, and important to him. And in his book, uh, Resurrection, Myth or Reality, uh, he says that if the resurrection of Jesus cannot be believed except by assenting to the fantastic descriptions included in the Gospels, then Christianity is doomed, for that view of the resurrection is not believable. So he's actually not alone in this either. There are plenty of people who call themselves Christians uh, who don't believe in or teach that Jesus was physically raised uh, from the dead. Apparently in Great Britain, I read that a quarter of people who describe themselves as Christians don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, and so that view, and views of people like John Shelby Spong, uh, it makes two claims about the resurrection. It says firstly that uh, it doesn't matter whether the resurrection really happened. So it's um, not that important, or not that central to true Christian faith. Uh, and secondly, it claims that the narrative of the resurrection as presented in the Gospels, in the Bible, uh, is not believable. And I wanna address both of those um, claims, both of those uh, objections today, because I think where we land on them, like I said before, has a really significant impact uh, on how we understand uh, the Gospel, how we understand the good, good news of Jesus. And I want to say before I dive in, that uh, in the first question, the first claim, where we're looking at the centrality of the resurrection, we'll be very focused on the Bible and what it has to say about uh, the resurrection, because that is, of course, where we sort of derive its significance. Um, and then in the second uh, part, where I'll be looking at the evidence for the truthfulness of the biblical uh, narrative, we will also venture into some sources and evidence outside the Bible. So the first question to address is, does it really matter whether Jesus was physically raised in terms of our understanding of the gospel? 
Uh, and to answer this question, I want to turn first to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. Uh, and in these verses, the Apostle Paul is uh, addressing an incorrect view uh, that existed amongst some of the Corinthians that there would be no resurrection of the dead. And to give you a bit of context, uh, the Bible teaches that on the future final day of judgment, there will be um, a physical resurrection of the dead, will be raised and judged, and those who've put their faith in Christ will be resurrected to everlasting life uh, in a a new creation. But it seems that some of the Corinthians were saying that that wouldn't happen, that couldn't happen. They said the dead are not raised. And so this is what Paul writes in response. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised and the emphasis is my own, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So this is incredibly clear. I think whether or not Christ was raised from the dead obviously matters a lot. Um, If Christ was not raised, uh, then we are still in our sins, it says here. How can that be? What does that mean? Why would we still be in our sins if uh, Christ has not been raised? Well, uh, because Christ's resurrection is the evidence uh, that his death was an effective sacrifice for sin. If Christ has not been raised, then that tells us that his death didn't pay for sin. And so there's no gospel. Another really helpful passage here is uh, Romans 4.25, which which says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And although I want to be clear that um, the work of our justification was truly finished on the cross, uh, there is clearly some serious significance in the resurrection here. Um, and the theologian R.C. Sproul helps us to understand this passage better. He says of Romans 4.25 that by vindicating Christ in his resurrection, and the word vindicate means to show or prove something to be right, uh, so by vindicating Christ in his resurrection, the Father declared his acceptance of Jesus' work on our behalf. And later he says, had Christ not been raised, we would have a mediator whose redeeming work on our behalf was not acceptable to God. Another way of, uh, a helpful way I think of describing the relationship between uh, Christ's cross and his resurrection is found in John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. And there he says, the resurrection was the conquest confirmed and announced. We are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won, 
and the resurrection, the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. So Christ's victory over sin and death on the cross was demonstrated and gloriously proclaimed by the resurrection. So by it, we know that uh, Jesus' work on the cross was truly effective and was approved by God. And as a result, that approval also flows to us uh, who are united to Jesus through faith. So we can see, I think, clearly that the resurrection is an integral, glorious, uh, hope-giving part of the gospel. Um, And and I also want to say that the Bible says that this is a physical resurrection. If you read Luke chapter 24, uh, it talks there about the uh, the point at which Jesus appears to his disciples after he's been raised. And Jesus is physically standing amongst his disciples. uh, He tells them to touch him and see that he has flesh and bones, and he eats with them. So the resurrection is also not some sort of uh, spiritual metaphor we can see in scripture that Jesus was raised in his physical, uh, his physical body. And Matt's gonna unpack uh, the meaning and implications of this a little more uh, over the coming weeks, but for now, uh, I think it's sufficient to say that the physical resurrection of Jesus is clearly essential uh, for our right understanding of the gospel and is, uh, is um, fundamental for true Christian faith. So now that we've touched on, uh, on the importance or the centrality of the resurrection, we get to the second claim, uh, which was about whether the biblical narrative is believable. So essentially, what evidence do we have uh, that the bibli- biblical account of the resurrection um, really happened? And there are a few different uh, lenses through which we can look at this. Uh, And before we look at it from a historical perspective, which I'll spend the most time on, I first wanted to briefly touch on a question that I mentioned uh, earlier, which was the question of whether it's irrational to believe in miracles. I said uh, that some of you might object to the resurrection uh, on the basis that it's unscientific, um, that it's impossible for anything to occur that contravenes the natural laws of the universe. And that is a fairly common objection. So Richard Dawkins, one of the most high-profile atheists of the last couple of decades, uh, he doesn't even really engage on the question of whether the resurrection happened. He simply says uh, that it's, quote, palpably unscientific uh, and that no scientist could possibly take such an idea seriously. And if that reflects your view, um, you might say a miraculous event such as the resurrection is a a violation of those natural laws, so there must be some other explanation. Um, We we just haven't found it yet, because natural laws simply cannot be violated. But consider for a moment uh, the possibility that there is a God who designed uh, and put into place those physical laws. Physical laws are basically just a, uh, a set of rules that govern the natural world, and they govern um, how, how that natural world works, operates. It says that if a certain set of conditions is present, then a particular outcome must necessarily occur. And to say that uh, a particular outcome breaks a known physical law assumes uh, that the initial set of conditions is unchanged, that nothing else uh, sort of entered into that equation. 
But what if uh, there's a God who can enter into that equation? If there is a God who designed and implemented uh, the physical laws of the universe, then he is not himself bound by those laws. He can choose to uh, momentarily suspend them all together or to uh, intervene in the equation in some way to alter the outcome. And I think that is uh, not unscientific. The Christian claim is not that these things happened by uh, natural processes, so things like um, the virgin conception, uh, the uh, resurrection, and all of Jesus' miracles. They didn't happen by natural processes. They happened because God intervened in the natural order of things uh, in some way. I think the more important question to wrestle with, uh, if this is your perspective, is the question of uh, whether God exists. And it's the question um, of whether Jesus was God as he claimed. Jesus claimed to be God, and he gave evidence for that by his miracles. So if the most plausible explanation for the available evidence is uh, that something miraculous might have occurred, then I think we need to be open to that. We need to be uh, open to reconsider uh, whether there might be a powerful God after all. So if that's you, I encourage you as we get into uh, the rest of uh, this morning to not just flat out reject the possibility of the resurrection, but to consider the question of the existence and nature of God and to consider, to really seriously consider the evidence for the resurrection. So what about uh, the hard historical evidence, the, the lens of historical inquiry? Do we have hard historical evidence uh, for the resurrection? Because the claim of the Bible is that the resurrection was a real uh, physical historical event. So if that's true, we would expect the details around that to be verifiable. And what is really notice, uh, notable here to mention to, to start off is that uh, serious uh, historical scholars who are experts in the field, uh, they take the resurrection seriously. So even skeptical historians who don't believe in miracles, uh, they see the evidence for the resurrection as an odd, difficult to explain set of historical evidence. Um, and I'll, I'll get into some, some sources in a moment um, that are examples of that. And a quick side note uh, before I get into that is uh, that the fact that Jesus existed in the first place is really considered uh, beyond all doubt by virtually all serious historical scholars. I'm not going to get into that more because that's not the focus of this morning, but it's important to know that Jesus being a real historical figure uh, is considered established fact by historians. So I think when th thinking through the resurrection, there are uh, five pieces of evidence, five things we need to consider that caused the resurrection to be taken seriously by scholars of history. And the first piece of evidence uh, is the empty tomb of Jesus. The gospel accounts uh, of Jesus' death and resurrection say uh, that Jesus was buried in a tomb after his crucifixion, and that on the third day after his burial, his tomb was found empty by a group of women. And most scholars agree that this really happened. And the most important piece of evidence for this uh, is precisely because it was women who were first reported to have found the empty tomb. 
Um, had this been a fabricated story, that detail would never have been included because unfortunately, uh, at the time of writing, the testimony of women was essentially considered worthless in, in Jerusalem. So uh, in, a, in a fabricated story, it would almost certainly have been men uh, being the discoverers of the empty tomb. Another piece of evidence for the empty tomb is that uh, the account of Jesus' burial, which seamlessly flows into the account of his resurrection, gives the location of Jesus' burial site. Uh, so Jesus was buried in the tomb of a guy called Joseph of Arimathea, who was a high-ranking uh, Jewish leader, but who had disagreed with the execution of Jesus. Um, so people knew the site of the burial. So it would have been very easy uh, to go there and reveal the body to disprove the claims of Jesus' followers that he had been risen, that he had risen. Uh, and it would have been very easy to expose the disciples as liars, but that didn't happen. A third, and I think a very compelling piece of evidence for the empty tomb, is that the earliest Jewish arguments also don't uh, refute it, they don't deny it. So the Jewish leadership of the day, um, who had a strong interest, they had good reason to try and disprove the resurrection, to put an end to this uh, Christianity movement, uh, they acknowledged that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was empty. In uh, the book of Matthew chapter 28, we read that the chief priests instructed the men who'd been guarding the tomb to uh, say to people that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. And other non-biblical uh, sources, they tell us that the stolen body theory was fairly common among Jews of the day to explain uh, the empty tomb. So the Jewish leaders didn't deny that very significant fact, um, even though that fact didn't work in their favor. And instead they tried to explain it by some other means. Uh, so that in itself, I think, gives us fairly solid evidence uh, for the truthfulness of that fact. And when you put all the evidence together, uh, the claim of the empty tomb is very solid. Uh, a guy called Michael Grant, who is a historian who focused on Greco-Roman history, uh, who himself was apparently an atheist, uh, said that if we apply the same sort of criteria that we would apply to any other ancient literary sources, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. So that's the, uh, the empty tomb. The next piece of evidence to consider is Jesus' appearance to his followers after his death. We read in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, three to six, uh, these words from Paul. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And we also see this claim in the gospel accounts. So I mentioned uh, Luke 24 earlier, and the fact that Paul records this in his letter to the Corinthians, and that most of those uh, who he claimed saw Jesus uh, resurrected, 
that they were still alive at the time to be questioned about it, gives us strong evidence in any case uh, that Christ's followers were themselves thoroughly convinced that they had seen uh, the risen, and, and been with the risen Jesus. There's an ancient historian, uh, also an expert on the historical figure of Jesus called E.P. Sanders, uh, who says this of the resurrection appearances, that Jesus' followers, and later Paul, had resurrection experiences is in my judgment a fact. What the reality was that gave rise to those experiences, I do not know. So it's clear that uh, many of Jesus' followers thought and claimed to have genuinely seen the resurrected Jesus. And of course it doesn't follow uh, directly that Jesus was in fact raised uh, from the dead. There are four different possibilities uh, for what's going on here. Either uh, he was either the, the followers of Jesus were lying, come up here, either they had all had the same vivid hallucination, uh, or Jesus had never really died on the cross, that's another one that's uh, sometimes argued, or they genuinely saw and interacted with the resurrected Jesus. So which of these is most likely? I think uh, the, the last option when you work through them is the only one that really makes sense. Firstly, why would Jesus' followers lie about this? Some of them, uh, like Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, uh, they were not believers in Jesus before they saw him resurrected. Uh, so it's, it's very unlikely that they would have made this up. And after claiming to have seen him, they were radically converted and both of them became um, leaders in the early church. And after claiming uh, to have seen him, many of the other disciples uh, were also willing to suffer imprisonment and heavy persecution for their faith. We know that uh, Paul and James were both killed for their faith. Uh, and while the evidence for some of the other, for the other, for the 12 disciples is uh, less uh, strong on their actual martyrdom, we do know that they were willing to suffer heavy persecution for their faith. Following Jesus in the first century uh, was, uh, carried a very real risk of death, and at least of heavy persecution. So given the serious consequences, this isn't something that uh, anyone would just lie about. I think uh, it's, it's clear that the convictions of the disciples were genuine and deep. They truly believed that they had seen the risen Jesus. I don't think they were lying men. And they were willing to risk, and in some cases give their lives uh, for that belief. So everything seems to point towards uh, that the earliest Christians genuinely believed the message that they spread. So then we get to the uh, hallucination theory, which I also really don't think holds up to scrutiny. For one thing, it's uh, close to impossible for a group of people to all have the same hallucination. Uh, hallucinations are individual by nature, similar to dreams, and they can't be shared, they generally can't be shared between multiple people. Um, and as well as that, uh, Jesus' appearance to his disciples, his appearances to his disciples were very physical in nature. So like I said, they involved um, touching Jesus to see that he was real and eating with him and interacting with him. 
Um, and so if this were a hallucination, it would be what's called a tactile hallucination, which uh, apparently is extremely rare outside of serious mental disorders uh, like schizophrenia. So to say that multiple people started having the same tactile hallucination at the same time uh, is absolutely a massive stretch, to put it mildly. Um, it's, it's totally implausible. So I think this theory also doesn't hold up to scrutiny. So then we get to the third possibility, uh, which was that Jesus never really died on the cross. And this theory is that yes, he was crucified, uh, but he simply lost consciousness. He fainted or fell into a coma on the cross. And so people thought he had died and buried him in his tomb. And three days later, he uh, revived in his tomb by himself. So it wasn't a resurrection, but a resuscitation. But even if you begin to scratch the surface of what uh, Roman torture and execution was like, it, it becomes very clear that this is also a completely implausible suggestion. Uh, because Roman torture and execution was brutal. I'm sorry to put this image into your minds, but Roman uh, floggings, which was the first thing that Jesus was subjected to, they tore flesh off people's backs. And they caused such grievous injury uh, that we know that many of the criminals who were sentenced to crucifixion in that time um, never actually made it onto their cross because they died from their floggings. Then there was the process of crucifixion itself, which was equally brutal. The, um, the Roman soldiers who carried out these executions were experts and they had perfected torture and killing uh, to a science. And so on the cross, uh, the sentenced criminal's body would almost certainly go into shock and they would either die of shock or die from asphyxiation, uh, from hanging by their wrists and not being able to deeply inhale. And then at the end of it all, we're told that a Roman soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side to be absolutely certain that he was dead. So Jesus cannot have survived this, let alone uh, get up in his tomb after two days with zero medical attention uh, and walk for 10 kilometers to Emmaus, which is where he's uh, thought to have first appeared to his disciples. So I think that is not a feasible explanation for what happened. So that then leaves us with the fourth option, that Jesus' followers really saw and interacted with the risen Lord Jesus. And I think that's where the evidence leads us. So we need to be open to that. The third piece of evidence that we have is the explosion of the Christian faith after the resurrection. And I touched on this before, but I think it's worth noting as a point of evidence on its own, uh, even the simple fact that Christianity got started, let alone that it spread rapidly in the face of intense persecution, uh, had to be triggered by something significant. So shortly after Jesus' death, when it looked like uh, this Christianity movement was finished, uh, there was a moment at which the followers of Jesus were suddenly transformed from a group of uh, dejected and defeated people uh, to being bold proclaimers of a message that uh, would eventually reach the entire world. So there must have been something significant uh, to trigger that story 
and to trigger that reaction. And perhaps the only thing significant enough uh, to trigger such a dramatic shift in the movement is a genuine resurrection of Jesus, witnessed by a large number of his followers. The fourth, uh, the fourth thing to consider is that there was no precedent in other religious traditions of the day for uh, resurrection claims, for the claim of a physical resurrection of a body. Uh, so the resurrection wasn't something that was expected. It wasn't something um, that would be obvious to include in a made-up story about Jesus. Uh, we have some uh, Middle Eastern religions, Middle Eastern religious traditions that believed in the resurrection of um, divine beings sort of in the spiritual realm. We have um, some Greco-Roman religious thought uh, where there was belief in the immortality of the soul. We also have some Eastern religion where there was uh, a belief like in, in Hinduism, for example, in re reincarnation, uh, which you could see as a sort of symbolic resurrection. But the physical resurrection of a human body uh, was not something that was heard of or expected. So the disciples must have been triggered um, by something to start telling this story of the reason Jesus, risen Jesus uh, to come into existence. So finally, the uh, fifth piece of evidence we have from a historical perspective is the very early date uh, of the first claims of the resurrection. Uh, we have overwhelming historical evidence that people started to claim that Jesus had been raised to life effectively simultaneously with the event itself. Um, so that the disciples were talking about and proclaiming Jesus' resurrection within months of his crucifixion. Uh, so that puts to rest the idea, which, uh, which also has circulated, that the resurrection was a legend or story developed by Christians over time. I think we, it's, it's clear from historical evidence that this was there from the very beginning and that this was a central part of the message from the very beginning. So there we have uh, the five key pieces of historical evidence to consider. And when we put it all together, I think the only plausible explanation, the only explanation that satisfactorily deals uh, with the available evidence is that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. There's an Australian uh, historian and theologian, John Dixon, who's uh, from my hometown, Sydney, who says that we have exactly the kind of evidence you would expect if a man really did rise from the dead. So another, uh, another way you could assess the evidence is through the lens of probability. And this is just a, a short one. But Richard Swinburne, who's a professor of philosophy at the University of Oxford, uh, he says that based on the evidence and the type of evidence that we see, uh, it's far more probable than not uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. So in other words, he says that the claim that Jesus didn't rise from the dead requires a far more complex explanation of the available evidence than the claim that he did. So when I put all of this together, I can only conclude uh, that Jesus was resurrected, that the Bible's claim is true and that this is an event that's grounded in history and that I think satisfies intellectually and uh, philosophically and spiritually.
So having looked at the evidence, um, we of course need to think about what does that mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, and for those of you who are followers of Jesus, I wanna point you back uh, to 1 Corinthians 15, 17, which said, uh, we looked at this before, which said that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But we can completely flip around this verse because Jesus has been raised, so we know that our faith is not futile and that we are no longer in our sins. So in God's mercy, we have been given a certain and living hope uh, through the resurrection of Jesus. We can have unshakable faith in all that Christ has achieved for us on the cross. And for those of you who still have questions, that's fine, and I'm so glad that you're here and that you're opening to listening to and thinking about this sort of stuff. And I, I just hope that um, I've been able to show you today that Jesus' death uh, is something, Jesus' death and resurrection is something that's grounded in history. Uh, and I hope you're inspired to seriously consider the claims of Jesus. And if you want to talk about that with someone uh, afterwards, then I, and I'm sure many of us here, would, uh, would love to chat with you. So come and say hi afterwards. Uh, but I hope that you can see that the Christian faith uh, is not about making a leap of blind faith and abandoning all intelligent thought. Um, it's, it, I experience the Christian faith as being intellectually satisfying. I think it makes uh, more sense, uh, it does a better job at making sense of reality than any other worldview that I've come across. But having said that, um, it's also important to remember that the Christian faith is not just about being convinced by a compelling argument in your mind. Uh, the fact that Jesus rose means that he is alive today. And the fact that we're united with him means that we can have a right relationship with our heavenly father. So Christianity isn't just something in your head, it's about the spirit of God coming and dwelling in you to completely change your heart. Uh, someone once described becoming a Christian to me as uh, sort of a Copernican revolution. If you hadn't had enough historical references today, here's one last one for you. Uh, before the 16th century, people thought that the sun and the planets rotated around the earth. But Copernicus was the first guy to theorize that actually the earth and all the other planets rotate around the sun. Uh, so the Copernican revolution refers to that shift which took about 100 years uh, in scientific thought from an earth-centered model to a sun-centered model. And Christianity uh, is a bit like that. Becoming a Christian is coming to understand that me and my life and the way that I understand and experience things is not the center, is not what everything revolves around, but actually Jesus is the thing that all of life and all of the universe revolves around. Um, Jesus is the focal point and is the center of everything. And that's what I meant at the beginning when I said that if I'm right about Jesus rising from the dead, then that is massively important and changes everything because it means um, that he is in fact uh, 
the focal point of everything. He is God as he claimed. He is what all of life and what all of the universe revolves around. And for those of us who have put our trust in him, uh, that is a source of great assurance and joy. Uh, Because of the resurrection, we have certain hope in all that Jesus won for us on the cross. So I'm gonna pray for us and then Sai's gonna lead us in communion. Father God, thank you so much for the resurrection. Lord, we uh, praise you for your power that is even displayed in the pages of history. We thank you, Lord, that Christ has been raised and by that we can know uh, that your incredible redeeming and justifying work on the cross uh, is effective. Lord, we thank you uh, for the certain and living hope that the resurrection gives us. And we pray that uh, that would fill our hearts with joy as we go from here this morning. Amen.